some weather we're having. <laughs> as long as we're protected, you know, safe and warm and out of the rain, there's something quite thrilling about it, actually, particularly when it um, really buckets down. I'm not used to this. <laughs> I live in a place where there's six months of drought every year in Northern California. So we we were still in our drought. <laughs> so um, when I was walking down the steps from my hut, which you know is all the way at the top, um, the steps had turned into a a stream, a waterfall, and um, it was very lovely, you know, just the waters <laughs> going down the steps. And I had to be very, very mindful as I walked down the steps because, um, well, I had these Crocs on, and the, then I, re- I, I noticed <laughs> that <laughs> I noticed that the Crocs have holes really quite near the bottom, <laughs> and I had socks on, so. I was just being very mindful. I didn't want to slip. I was very aware of the consequences of any lack of mindfulness in my steps down, coming down. So it really, you know, it's in a way, it's again, you know, really points to the practice that we're engaged with here. You know, the this this mindful attention, the necessity of that. And when we are heedless in some way, there are consequences. You know, there are consequences. And the, the mindfulness gives us the possibility of some protection. It's sometimes said that mindfulness is our greatest protection because it protects us from potential consequences that can be difficult and challenging. But when there's mindfulness, we have some choice there. We have, um, we have protection. So I wanted to talk tonight a little bit more about what the Buddha taught and what we're actually doing here on this retreat. Because I know sometimes when I'm on retreat, I don't know why I'm on retreat, and I can kind of uh, lose my way sometimes. And I think it's helpful to just kind of come back to some of the basic principles of what this practice is about. Some of you know that some years ago I became very, very interested in what the Buddha actually taught because I had been listening to mostly, well, primarily Western teachers. Uh, Joseph Goldstein and Jack Cornfield were my primary teachers. And, you know, after 10 or 12, 15 years, it's like, well, are they teaching what the Buddha actually taught? Because <laughs> it's very, you know, put into very westernized kind of uh, a language. And so I took underta- undertook a study of one of the, the texts, the Majjhima Nikaya of the Pali Canon, 150 Discourses of the Buddha which is really a fabulous um, collection of discourses that really have most of the primary teachings.
teachings that the Buddha gave. Probably all of the, te- the primary teachings the Buddha gave. And what really stood out was that the Buddha really is not a mystic. The Buddha is not teaching magic or any kind of special powers. You know, what, the, what was very clear and what is very well stated is that what the Buddha's teaching is a correct method for liberate, being liberated from our suffering, from our dukkha. But it's a very specific method, a very direct method. And the Buddha says that unless you follow the correct method, you may not arrive where you want to go. You may not get the result that you want. And there's a, 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 some similes that are used where the Buddha says, if one pulls a recently calved cow by her horn, one won't get milk. But if one pulls her udder, one will, because that's the right method for procuring the result. And he says, if one grinds gravel to get oil, it doesn't matter whether one wishes for oil or doesn't, one's not going to get it. If one uses sesame flour, however, one will obtain oil, for this is the correct method. So he's really very pragmatic. He's saying you need to know the method and then apply the method and you will get the result. And in this case, what the Buddha is presenting as the method is the Eightfold Noble Path. And in that Eightfold Noble Path, which is the fourth Noble Truth of the four, four Noble Truths, in that Eightfold Noble Path, everything is there. Everything that we need to know to walk the path towards liberation. And when we talk about liberation, we're talking about liberation from our dukkha, from dukkha. From dukkha, dukkha means from the unsatisfactory nature of experience, so that our experience is no longer unsatisfactory. I mean, just imagine that. (laughs) I mean, just for starters, (laughs) you know, not even taking dukkha, you know, into the usual definition, you know, which is suffering. But a lot of people can't really relate to the word suffering because there isn't, for some people, many people, there isn't a lot of suffering in one's life. Some people have very comfortable or easy, secure life, and so they can't really relate to that word suffering. But everybody can relate to the word unsatisfactory, which is a correct translation of dukkha. Not getting what we want, losing what we love, you know, just that, the very simple, basic unsatisfactoriness of life. So we practice this Eightfold Noble Path, that's what we're practicing here, and we're, we're practicing the 
the basket of there's three baskets the basket of meditation um, uh, called samadhi which is mindfulness concentration and the effort or energy that's needed to cultivate the path and this path is the cultivation of mind the cultivation of our mind all about cultivating the mind so the method that is used in this particular training comes from the discourse of the Satipatthana Sutta, which is the four foundations of mindfulness, where the Buddha is very, very specific on what to direct our mindfulness to. So we have this, this quality of mindfulness, we wake up, we wake up to this aspect of our mind which, where we can actually direct attention towards experience, towards whatever is arising in the present moment. We can turn that awake or that alert attention to some phenomenon that's occurring in the moment, whether it's a thought or whether it's a feeling, whether it's a sound, a sight, a taste, a smell all the things that we're exploring, which I'll go through in the four foundations. And this mindfulness, as Jeremy was talking about the mindfulness last night, the mindfulness is the aspect of mind that knows our experience. It sheds light on our present moment experience so we can actually see, we can actually know what's happening. We have this quality of mind light. It's really light. It's an illuminated quality of mind which sheds light on what's happening. And there's a quality which of the mindfulness where it, we can actually tether our attention. We can uh, make contact with a particular phenomena and then phenomena, phenomenon and then begin to examine it and begin to inquire it into it. To know it to understand it, to probe into it, to see what its nature is. And there's a, there seems to be a natural curiosity that arises within our consciousness that we want to know. We want to know about our experience. We, wa- we want to know about reality. It seems like there's a natural, a natural kind of interest or pull for us as human beings to want to know and understand. And with that mindfulness, with that illumination, there's also a quality of what's called discriminating awareness or discriminating uh, wisdom, where we can actually know that something's different than something else. We can begin to tease apart our experiences and then we, we learn language and we have memory and we can say, yeah, um, that's a thought rather than a sensation. Or I like that taste of that food and I don't like the taste of that food. You know, we, can be, we begin to make these discriminations in our experience. And this mindfulness brings us into the immediacy. It's now. It sheds light on the present moment. Even if we're having a memory, 
about the past, that's still happening in the present moment. And we can know that we're having an, a, mem- a memory of, about something in the past in the present moment. And that mindfulness, as I said, that mindfulness makes contact. It tethers the, the, the mind to the object so that we can really begin to understand our reality. And this is our tool. You know, this is our, our, our vehicle, the tool that we're using for our exploration, for our discovery. And one of the things that we, we see, we can begin to see and is pointed out in this path, is that there's two primary movements of the mind two primary movements of the mind. There's the movement towards what we like and the movement away from what we don't like. This kind of wanting or grasping mind, the the mind that keeps moving towards the liking and then rejecting and moving away from what it doesn't like. We call it aversion or the aversive mind. And when we start to pay attention, we can see how much of the time this is operating. This movement, and we actually experience the mind as moving. It's kind of the moving towards and then moving away. And, and, And not only do we experience that in the mind, we actually experience in the body. So what we experience in the mind, we experience in the body. So we can feel that wanting, I want that, and we can almost feel like we're toppling forward into that experience or into that wanting. Whatever it is, whether it's a meditative experience that we like or whether it's a person that we want to be near or whether it's food that we like, it's like, I want that. We can feel, as we start to get sensitive, we can start to feel our experience in that way. And then we can feel the opposite, which is the rejecting or the aversive nature, where we're pushing away. We don't want it. And there's a backing away. There's a pushing out. You can actually feel it very physically. You can feel it very energetically as you start to become more aware of it, how these movements of the mind. So we, as we're exploring these four foundations of mindfulness. This is very key in our exploration because when we're talking about mindfulness, we're not talking about rejecting or grasping. We're really wanting to see if we can know experience for what it is. Just let it be what it is. We might see a version in the mind But mindfulness just sees the aversion for what it is, and it doesn't add more aversion on top of it. It doesn't start adding a whole kind of storyline on top of it that, oh, I'm just such an aversive person, and I can't get out of my aversion, and this aversion is just so terrible, and I should just go to bed and go to sleep and, you know, not even, you know, it's just aversion. You know, mindfulness just can see that, can just see that for what it is without adding a whole bunch more on top of it. So the Buddha has this sat, it's called the Satipatthana Sutta, and Sati is a Pali word for mindfulness, Sati, and Patana is 
foundations. So foundations of mindfulness. There's four foundations. And it's a systematic map. A systematic map map for what to be mindful of. And it starts with the more gross and then it goes to the more refined aspects of the mind and the body. And so the first foundation is the physical aspect of the body. And that's where we begin. Being mindful of the body. The second foundation is a little bit more subtle. It's the subtle objects of the quality of experience, which is called the feeling tone, where we're just noticing whether something's pleasant or unpleasant or somewhere in between. So we have the the physical aspects of the body, and then we have the subtle experience of the tone of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. Then the third foundation is a little bit more subtle, where it's the foundation of the mindfulness of the mind. We're just paying attention to the different formations of mind as it appears, as as it arises and passes. And knowing the conditions of the condition of the mind at any given time. Mostly whether what's arising in the mind is skillful or whether it's unskillful. And then the fourth foundation is a, a even more subtle and it's called the contemplation of the mental qualities. It's when we start to know the territory of mind, then we can begin to work with it. We can begin to actually start to uh, work with the mind so that we can turn our mind towards liberation, towards freedom. I'm going to talk a little bit more about that. But the key in each one of these is the awareness, is the knowing. We have to wake up this mindfulness so we actually know what mindfulness is and how, how, how to be mindful. It's like it's the basic practice. And then we can use this tool and apply it to these conditions of the mind and the body so that then we can start to work with the mind and free up these conditions so that we're no longer bound in this suffering, in this pain, in this unsatisfactoriness. So the first foundation is the body. This is where we begin. We begin with this on a retreat. And body also means the breath. So simply in the first foundation, it's really to simply know the body as a body. It is, it's so basic. It's not esoteric. It's not mystical. It's just so pragmatic. That's what, that's what makes this so doable. It makes it so workable for us. Because in the first foundation, all we need to know is the body as a body. And what that really means is that we really just have the basic of feeling the sensations in our body. Just as you're sitting here right now, there's probably some kind of feeling, some kind of sensation of knowing that you have a body. (laughs) 
is taking some kind of form, it's taking some kind of experience, subtle, often subtle. Sometimes the sensations are a little stronger, a little bit more gross. Just simply knowing the body as a body. Having this direct contact with a sense of presence in the body that you know that you're inhabiting a body. And this actually isn't so easy (laughs) for a lot of people because a lot of people are very dissociated from their bodies. A lot of people are just really caught up in their heads. You know, thinking, there was a, a rock group called Talking Heads. You know, just, you know, we're just thinking, 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 and there can be a lot of disconnection from the body. So this first foundation is really this inhabiting, inhabiting the body, knowing the body as a body. Inhabiting. This, there's uh, one, uh, some author who, who, there's this one line that said, um, he, a description of one of his characters where he said, Mr. Roberts resided a short distance from his body. And you just know what that means, right? <laughs> you know what that means because there's not really a sense of groundedness, of being anchored, of being present having your feet on the ground, of knowing where you are, knowing where you're sitting, knowing where you're standing. When you're eating, sitting and eating and taking the food in and chewing the food and swallowing the food and really have a sense of feeding this body. You have a body to feed. (laughs) You have a body to take care of. Just this basic sense. It's a basic sense of, I am here. There is a body. This body exists. Not trying to dissolve this body or get out of this body or transcend this body. No, but inhabit this body. And as we do that, we start to establish more of a sense of wholeness. We feel more whole. We feel here. We feel present through this body, we're given this body as a human species, we have a, a, a physical body, and we start to inhabit and take care of it. It's our vehicle so that we can practice, so that we can walk the path of awakening. Without this body, we wouldn't be able to do the practice, we wouldn't be able to do the work. And so we get here. So the, there's six practices in this first foundation, uh, Jeremy started talking about them last night, is the, the breath, the practice of the breathing, that we really start connecting with the breath, we know our breath. The second practice is posture, that we're mindful in sitting, standing, walking, lying down, we're mindful in our body, in those postures. The third practice is activities, when we're moving and, and working and engaging and sweeping and washing the dishes, the wonderful metaphor of washing the dishes, we're here in our body. So we start with these basic practices. They're so, um, so, so, so foundational. That's why we do our walking meditation. It's been lovely seeing people 
do do walking meditation here. You know, the rain's coming down. People are just walking back and forth and back and forth in the corridors. It's just so inspiring to see. You know, very, very, very dedicated, very committed. I mean, who knows where your minds are at, right? But <laughs> looks good. <laughs> you look good. <laughs> But, you know, that practice, you know, the practice of bringing the attention back, bringing the attention back to the body. When we're sitting to the breath, when we're walking to the feet, to our arms, to our hands, we know where we are. We know where we are inhabited. And then the Buddha has three other practices because what happens is that we get so identified with our body as who we are. We start to to cherish this body or to identify it and then start to, you know, want it to look certain ways and be certain ways and, you know, not to get sick and not to grow old and, you know, we want to stay young and, you know, all the different ways we start to identify with it. So the Buddha has three other practices with the body to actually help us break down that identification so that we are being mindful in the present moment without solidifying a sense of identity around ourselves, around this body. So one practice is called the 32 parts, where you actually, there's specific practices where you you break the body down into 32 parts of organs like heart and liver and intestines and um, all the different fluids like like, um, feces and urine and blood and you just break it all down and you see, is this me? You know, it's sort of like when you cut off your fingernails, did you just fall on the ground? You know, it's sort of really starting to contemplate who am I? You know, am I this body? Is this body me? That's one of the contemplations. Another one is the contemplation on the corpse, which is big in uh, Buddhist practice where you actually go and sit with a corpse and see that this body is impermanent, as all things are impermanent. All conditions arise and pass, even this body, so that we don't get so attached to it. I remember when I was reflecting on uh, uh, talking about this at one of the retreats I was doing in Canada, um, it's not near a lot of sheep, just like around New Zealand there's a lot of sheep and there's um, on the path where the yogis were doing their walking there was one sheep that must have got attacked by a wolf or something in the night it was just shredded apart on the path and it was really good practice you know (laughs) because one day there was you know the lovely beautiful sheep and then the next day it's just you know bone and muscle and blood and wool and you know, where's the being? It's just the body. It's just physical, material body. No more sheep in the way that it was. And all things, so we contemplate in this way. And then the sixth practice is the four elements where we start to break down the body into earth, air, fire, and water. And there are practices for that as well where we can feel the fire element of the heat, 
the temperature or we can feel the water element of the of the of the the, the tears and the blood and all of that or we can feel the air <coughs> the air element which is the space and the uh the breath and the um earth which is the physical matter the hardness the density uh, and we can know ourselves as that. So we start to break, we start to pierce through some of the solidity and this identification with ourselves as the body and do this kind of reflection. So the body, mindfulness of the body, and all of this is turned towards the liberation, right? So this is right mindfulness, it's wise mindfulness, and any factor on the Eightfold Noble Path is a noble factor because it leads to liberation. It leads to the ending of suffering. And so when we apply wise mindfulness to the foundation of the body, we are looking at the body so that we can be free of identification of this body as me, as I, as mine. Because there's so much suffering, so much suffering in the identification with the body. And we all know that. And the body starts appearing and uh, configuring in ways that we don't like or we don't want. So much rejection, so much pain around that. So much attachment. Our whole culture is, is built on this kind of idealism and vanity and how we should look and how we should be in our body. So the body, the foundation of the body. The second foundation of feeling is Vedana, and we're going to do more practice around Vedana, where we're actually looking at simply the feeling tone of experience. So is experience pleasant? Is it unpleasant? Or is it somewhere in between, neither pleasant or unpleasant? When we listen to the rain, Generally, that's pretty pleasant. I think most people feel a kind of pleasant quality in that. Or the bird song. Something pleasant. And there's not too much mental proliferation around it. It's just you can just be mindful of the pure hearing of the sound and the pleasant quality, the Vedana, that would be associated with that rain. And then... Pain, intense pain, probably unpleasant, mm-hmm. you know, unpleasant quality. We can feel that unpleasantness. You know, it has a certain tone, and it's it's just there's not a you can't really say too much about it. It just is. You just know it. It has a pleasant quality, an unpleasant quality. And then there's this whole range of experience where you can't say that it's pleasant, and you can't say it's unpleasant. You can see that a lot in your meditation, where it's not much happening, just sitting there, kind of some breath going back and forth. Then the thought might arise, nothing's happening. (laughs) And then the proliferation can begin. It's like, well, something should be happening. And am I, this is kind of boring, and I'm just sitting here, and I'm doing nothing, and how long do I have to sit here? And this is just like, well, maybe I'm not getting anywhere. You know, there's no 
there's no, nothing happening. I mean, but isn't something supposed to happen in my meditation? Aren't I supposed to have like these wonderful experiences? And maybe I should stop doing this because there's no progress. You know, I mean, you just start getting into the whole. But all it is is just a neutral feeling. So, and oftentimes what can happen then is, is the mind just slips off of experience and we just kind of go to sleep or get dull or bored. Or something. It's hard to stay there when there's, we're not really stimulated in one way or another by pleasure or by pain. So this is very interesting that the Buddha makes this one of the four foundations, the feeling. It's so important in the practice of liberation because what we see is that when something feels good and we like it we want it to stay and when it doesn't feel good and we don't like it we want to get rid of it and when it's sort of neutral we sort of go to sleep we don't pay attention we you know we want to go find something that's going to be more interesting or more enjoyable and so here is where the mind starts to move. The mind starts to move towards something or away from something. And that can be a strong reaction or a strong attachment, really holding on to something that we really like that feels really good. And so we, re so, so we start to pay attention, and we're going to talk more about this in our practice, to pay attention because we want to see how the grasping starts to formulate in the mind. And the grasping is a generic word that's used both for attachment and aversion. The grasping. The grasping can be either for something we like or the grasping for in the rejection. We still have to grasp it to reject it. So the grasping. So we're really, this is the cause, as you know, the second noble truth, the cause of suffering. It's the grasping. Is the is that the, the contraction, the tightening in the mind that holds on to its I ideas and its ideology, what it thinks is going to bring its happiness. So the Vedana, the feeling tone. The third foundation is the foundation of mind. And first we have to discern what we mean by mind because in in esoteric studies this is, in a, this is a whole thing in itself it's like well what's mind <laughs> so generally we have the ordinary mind we know the ordinary mind and Jeremy spoke about that last night the monkey mind or the chattering mind or you know the mind that's just incessantly thinking about all number of things, right? We know that mind. Is there anyone in here who actually doesn't know that mind? <laughs> or maybe somebody's already fully enlightened, you know. <laughs> that monkey mind, which we call the ordinary mind, which is the the think, the thinking. The thinking and also the images and the dreams and all that kind of movement of mind that's about the past and the future and commenting on the present. But in the Satipatthana, when they're talking about the foundation of mind, the word is uh, in Sanskrit, it's citta, C-I-T-T-A. And what that really means, it's really, this is a beautiful subtlety, 
is what it means is heart-mind. So it's not just the conceptual mind, it's not just the thinking mind, but it also, it also includes the emotional sense of what's occurring in experience. So, interestingly enough, in this foundation is where you find emotion. It's mental activity and emotion. Because there's no distinction in this, in this mindfulness foundation. The mind includes the emotional tone that arises because you can't really separate what's moving in the mind from what you're feeling what's moving in the emotion. So if you're thinking about your mother and you don't have a really great relationship with your mother and that thought arises and the picture arises and it's like, oh, my mother, you know, what she's she's done to me. (laughs) She's ruined my life. You know, and then there's a whole feeling tone. There's a whole feeling with that, you know, anger or aversion or agitation or frustration or aversion. And so there's there's really, I mean, we can distinguish, we can discriminate between the thought or the images and the emotions. We can sometimes feel that in the body, in different moods or different mind states. But in this foundation, when we're talking about mindfulness of mind, we're talking about being mindful of all of that. It's really about how the mind is being colored. What is actually conditioning consciousness? Because you can think of consciousness in a kind of a a pure state, kind of consciousness. Imagine consciousness in sort of its purity, like a clear pool, just a fresh, clear pool where consciousness is just pure, spacious, light. And then something comes in, like anger, (laughs) and there's a coloration. There's something that conditions that consciousness. And so it seems like there's anger. And we can lose a sense of the purity. We can lose a sense of the depth of the true of the actual nature of consciousness itself because of these colorations, whatever this coloration is. And so what we're interested, particularly in the mindfulness of the mind, is the colorations that are difficult and painful and challenging usually falling into the category of greed, you know, the grasping or the lust, the aversion, the hate, the rejection, or the confusion or delusion. And how the conditioning of our past colors the mind. And so we lose touch, we lose contact with the essential nature, with the pure nature of who we are and what is here. So the practice of the foundation of mind is to simply know the mind and what is conditioning the mind at any given moment. So the Buddha uses the example 
of to know the contracted mind when the mind is contracted. And that would be like dullness or lethargy or tension or clinging, some kind of grasping. A contracted mind, to know the contracted mind as contracted mind. Or to know the distracted mind as distracted mind. Distracted mind might be like restless or worried or agitated. Or to know, and then to to know the opposite, to know the liberated mind as liberated mind. So that when the mind is free of that conditioning, when the mind is free of that coloration, we know that. We're mindful of that. There's There's an awareness of the mind that is not colored, that is not bound by those conditions of our past. The mind that, in this case, would be temporarily freed. This liberated mind. And liberated mind, in this case, doesn't mean a mind that is completely and forever free. But to know the mind when it is free of these conditions of greed, hatred, and confusion. And what's interesting is that the Buddha when he's saying to be mindful of the mind in its different conditions and in its different states and moods, he does not say to judge it. He doesn't say to change it. He doesn't say to empty the mind or to manipulate the mind, to make the mind different than it is. He's basically saying to be mindful of the quality of the consciousness in any given moment, simply to know it. To know this coloring, this coloration. And, and, I, and I really want to make that point because you, you can see how quickly the judgment can come in that our mind should be different than it is, or we shouldn't be in this kind of state, or we shouldn't be in this kind of mood, or we shouldn't be in this kind of reaction. There's so much judgment that we can have about what's actually occurring. And then we've already taken one step into the proliferation in what's called in um, Pali, papancha, the proliferation of mind, where we hop on a train, and we just go down to some, some destination. In this case, something's wrong with me. You know, I just get caught up in this all the time. You know, I should just give up right now. Yeah. Just to simply see this mind state as a mind state. To see a sensation in the body as a sensation in the body. To see a feeling, pleasant, unpleasant, as a feeling so simple. So these first three foundations we call bare attention. This is where we just bare attention. We're just giving bare attention to the body, to the mind, and to the feelings. Bare attention. And this is our practice. When we come to retreat, this is what we're practicing, is this bare attention. So that we can start to see when the mind veers off into all this proliferation, all this extra embellishment, which is what we call our stories, right? All the stories that we bring to our experience. 
And when we start to have these moments where we are simply here in that bare attention with just a sound or just a sensation or just a knowing of our mind as, oh, I'm judging or planning or knowing, oh, there's agitation. And we're not putting anything else on top of it. Just knowing it for what it is, as it is, there can be something so freeing in that, so liberating in that. It may be unpleasant. We're not saying that the experience when you're mindful of your bare experience that it's going to be pleasant because all experience will either be pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. It's inherent in all experience. So the bare experience may be a pleasant sound. Or the bare experience might be an unpleasant sensation in the knee. Or an unpleasant taste of some food. But we don't have to add a whole lot more on top of it. And as we start to see that tendency, that habit of the proliferation, we start to see where the freedom is actually possible because we can stop it. We can push that pause button. Say, okay, enough. <laughs> I don't need to go down that road. I don't need to go down that des- to that destination. I'm just going to stay here. So so this knowing the territory, knowing the territory of the mind, of the body, of the feelings, sets up the fourth foundation, which is this mindfulness of what's called the mental qualities. And as we start to see what's happening in our mind and body, and we start to see and notice the reactions of the grasping and the rejecting and the attaching and all of that, we start to understand what's giving rise to the difficulty and the, and the, the, the pain that we're feeling inside. Through our understanding of the method, we can start to incline our mind towards the freedom we can start to turn our mind towards the conditions that are going to bring about more freedom. Because I know that if I keep going along in this proliferation of this story about how much I hate this person and I don't want to ever see them again and they've really caused so much pain in my life, if I just go down that road, I'm just going to be caught in that emotional suffering. And I can see, oh yeah, I don't need to do that. I can actually stop that. By knowing our mind and our experience and using our body as a support to anchor into the present moment, we can learn what qualities of mind to avoid and to abandon and what qualities to develop and to maintain and cultivate. And so we want to develop 
and cultivate the qualities of love and generosity and kindness and peacefulness and balance and truthfulness and goodwill. And we want to cultivate that, which comes through the mind, comes through the emotions, comes through our experience. It's not that we're trying to get rid of experience. We're not trying to shut ourselves down. But we want to incline, we want to turn away from the conditions that are causing suffering in our lives and support and give rise to those conditions that are bringing in more happiness and contentment and satisfaction. And we actually can begin to make choices for this in our life. This is the method, this is the correct method that's going to bring about the result that we actually want. The Buddha says, whatever one frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will become the inclination of their mind. Whatever one frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will become the inclination of their mind. And so we're wanting to know the inclination of our mind. (laughs) Is our mind inclining towards aversion? Is our mind inclining towards hate? Is our mind inclining towards judgment? Is our mind inclining towards conflict and attachment and confusion and greed? If it's doing that, is there a way to turn away from that? Turn away into conditions that are going to be easeful and happy and contented. Essentially, the Buddha is saying what we want to overcome are what's called the five hindrances, these five difficult mind states, which are the ones that you've been encountering here on these days of the retreat. And I'll just say them briefly and we can go into them more, but the first hindrance is called the attachment to sensual pleasures, the wanting of the pleasurable realm. The second hindrance is the aversion of the the rejection of the unpleasant. Anybody having these experiences? (laughs) The third one is the sloth and torpor or the drowsiness and dullness of mind. And the fourth one is the opposite, which is the restlessness and the worry, the, where the mind's quite agitated and unsettled. And the fifth one is the doubt, where you're doubting your experience and doubting the teachings and doubting your uh, capacity to do the practice. And so these are the five mind states that we want to overcome and abandon, which we do in our practice as we develop mindfulness and concentration. And we want to cultivate and and give rise to what's called the seven factors of awakening. And that's what we're practicing here. And I'll just say what those are. Mindfulness, an investigation, that inquiry, which is needs energy, which is the third one, which needs energy to, to keep keep the mindfulness and the investigation going, which then gives rise to the fourth one, which is enthusiasm or rapture or joy in the practice because we start to be really present, we have energy, we're mindful, we're investigating. The the fifth one is then as that 
rapture gets very energized. It hits a peak where then it calms down into more tranquility and calm. And then the sixth one is as that tranquility calms down, we become more one-pointed and focused and more concentrated. And then that opens up to the equanimity, which is the seventh factor. And so these are what you experience. This is, this is not, again, mystical. This is not something unattainable. It's really what you're experiencing in your practice. So we're, we, we will, our intention is this inclination of mind, this turning the mind, turning the mind into conditions that are going to support this arising of our ease and our happiness and our contentment. And this is what will release the cause of our suffering, which is the grasping, the attaching, the rejecting releases that which then brings us back to the Four Noble Truths that there is suffering in this life that there is a cause for this suffering there is an end to this cause there is an end to this cause and the end to this cause is the cessation of this grasping is the cessation of that movement of mind the grasping and the rejecting, the grasping and the rejecting. And we come into a place of great equanimity with all conditions that arise and pass in our life. The Buddha uses an example of this equanimity as a someone riding a chariot where the horse has become very steady and even. And so the charioteer can relax in on the chariot and just watch the landscape go by. He calls it the on onlooking poise or the onlooking equanimity. We don't have to try to get that horse to st- <laughs> to calm down or or it's, it's going too slow. There's a kind of beautiful balance and poise in our practice. And so we just kind of sit back and watch the the landscape of our mind in a place of ease and calm and balance. This is the release of the conditions of suffering. So I'll I'll end with um, this Uh, what's called the autobiography in five short chapters which I like to read sometimes because I think it's a modern version of everything that I've just talked about for the last hour (laughs) in the, in the, the, the Buddha's path of coming out of suffering and this is a by Portia Nelson chapter one I walk down the street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I fall in. I am lost. I am helpless. It isn't my fault. It takes forever to find a way out. Chapter 2. I walk down the same street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I pretend I don't see it. 
I fall in again. I can't believe I'm in the same place, but it isn't my fault. It still takes a long time to get out. Chapter 3 I walk down the same street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I see it is there. I still fall in. It's a habit. My eyes are open. I know where I am. I have a choice. I get out immediately. Chapter 4 I walk down the same street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I walk around it. Chapter 5 I walk down another street. (laughs) 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 And and that's really it, you know? We just start walking down different streets and the whole landscape starts to change. And it's a lot better than it was, I can assure you. (laughs) And the Mahayana, as you know, the, the, there was the Theravadan tradition and then 500 years later came the Mahayana tradition which turned some of the things of the Buddha's teachings around. So there's a, another chapter for the, Ma, for the Mahayana which, which brought forth the Bodhisattva path which is the path to save all sentient beings rather than just your own. And uh, chapter 6 is I walk down the same street and put a cover over the hole so no one else will fall into it. (laughs) And that's the bodhisattva path. (laughs) So I'll end there. We'll just sit for a few minutes together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.